We've all heard Abraham Lincoln's paraphrase of Jesus' words, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Throughout history, we've seen human greed and hunger for power divide nations. And the story of the Bible is no different. What happened to the peaceful and prosperous time of King David and King Solomon? What about the kings who came after them? As we watch Israel collapse in on itself, we wonder what can save them and where is God? And we're gonna be talking about all of that and more on today's episode of Theology On Air. Well, welcome back to Theology On Air. Uh, Theology On Air was born out of a ministry called Theology On Tap here in Houston, where young adults get together for craft beer and talk about relevant topics around theology, philosophy, faith, and culture. And then in the podcast, we get to dive even deeper into those ideas. Uh, but because it's theology, we also obviously have to talk about the Bible and today is one of those days. Um, and I am Sarah Stone. I'm the outreach director for young adults at MDPC on the west side of Houston, joined by Evan McClanahan, senior pastor at First Lutheran in Midtown Houston, and joined by one of our favorite guests today, Ted Wright, the our own Indiana Jones. Uh, Ted Wright is the founder and executive of Epic, excuse me, Epic Archaeology, which explores the intersection between archaeology and biblical history, as well as Christian apologetics. Ted is the former teaching director at crossexamine.org. You may know that as the, the Frank Turek thing, and has taught Old Testament and biblical archaeology at Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College, as well as Charlotte Christian College and Seminary for about 10 years. And like I said, he's one of our favorites just because he's a wealth of information about the Bible and then can actually tell us where archaeology sort of proves it to be true, which is pretty cool. So welcome, Ted. We're so glad to have you. It's great to be back with you guys. So we came up with this idea after you and Evan recorded one, a, a podcast episode about Kings. And we didn't do well enough, Ted. No, apparently no, no, it's not, not apparently not. Thing. It's honestly that you went so into it, which I, I loved. I found it really interesting, but you only got through a couple Kings. So you mm -hmm. talked about King Saul and then you talked about King David and started about Solomon. But then there's this whole section in the Bible that I think a lot of people sort of read in that, like I'm skimming reading kind of thing, like yeah. Hezekiah yeah. and yeah. Josiah and blah, blah. And there's like several yeah. names that are like Abijah, Ahijah, Elijah, like <laughs> it's, it's too many. So you sort of like skip ahead till you get back to a familiar story, you know? Um, but I want to dive into it because there's, I mean, there's something to be learned from that as well, from that time of history. And um, so this is sort of part two about the kings in the Bible. So maybe start by telling us, you know, we, we dropped off talking about King Solomon. He's reigning. Uh, things seem pretty good. I've always said, you know, when people ask, like, if you could go back in time to some, you know, era, if the question was sometime in biblical history, 100% of the time, I'm going to say the time of King Solomon, because everyone was like, wealthy things were being there was gold and horses and food and i imagine like wine and olive oil just everywhere and if your baby was stolen you'd probably get her back oh my god him back <laughs> if you come up with a clever ruse well yeah or someone yeah. does yeah those are two prostitutes yeah. by the way <laughs> i mean you know <laughs> you gotta do what you gotta do it's a minor detail in the story <laughs> yeah yeah um but so, so we're in the, the time of Solomon. He's David's son. He's asked for wisdom. He's ruling super well, except maybe not so much. So maybe like bring us into where we are in the story. And then we're going to get to what all hell breaks loose after that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. That, and that's, that's a great setup. Uh, let me just kind of, if I can, if it's okay with you guys, start it sort of laying some foundational stuff that I think for the listeners might give it some a little bit more context um, since we're talking about uh, this is the second part in a part on Kings, um, what I'd like to do is sort of kind of go back a, just a little bit and talk about First and Second Kings as two books in the, in the Old Testament mm -hmm. that, as Sarah pointed out, that a lot of people sort of flip over because it's got a lot of stories and a lot of, you know, a lot of names that people are just not familiar with. Um, we believe that it was written somewhere, in, uh, most conservative scholars believe that the books were written sometime between 560 and 538 BC. This is about uh, this is probably after the uh, exile, and we know that the Israelites or the Jud uh, Judahites rather went into exile in 586 BC and, and Babylon, which brings uh, spoiler. That's the end of the story. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but so so I think it's important to to note the um, the purpose of the book. Uh, why why were these books included? Like when you look at the Old mm -hmm. Testament, you got you know you got the prophets, you got. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which tells us, you know, where 
God created all things and everything. Well, why did God include books like first and second Kings anyway? Mm -hmm. Like, why would he even write this? Like, why is it included in there? Because as Sarah sort of intimated at, there are a lot of sort of dysfunctional stories in these books that are like, what are these, where do these people come from? You know, they're like out in the left field or they're doing crazy stuff and they're doing sinful stuff. Mm -hmm. And so how can God deal with all this? So I think at a ground level what it presents to us is reality and that's the one thing mm -hmm. i love about the old testament is it's gritty it's earthy it's not trying to hide anything it's giving you the full warts and everything it's giving you the full picture of the way people are and i personally find that sort of refreshing because i know that i'm not perfect and uh, apart from sarah i know evan you and i are not perfect but um <laughs> just kidding uh... But in any case, um, let me give you about four reasons why I think the book was written. And, uh, and these are not just coming from myself, uh, some books that I've read on this as well. Um, number one, if it was, uh, if in fact these books were written during the time of the exile, or at least sometime after that, whoever the writer was, in fact, there's different uh, scholars give uh, different uh, possibilities as to who actually may have written the book itself. And some people say that it could have been Ezra or mm -hmm. it could have been um, uh, Ezekiel or even Jeremiah who wrote these books. And the reason why perhaps they're writing this down was to show the, the Israelites and the, and the Judahites in exile why they were there to begin with. Like yeah. they're, they're there in Babylon and they're, they're sitting there scratching their heads going, how in the world did we end up in Babylon? Why are we here? And so these books were written to show them, this is how you got here. You want to know mm -hmm. how you got here? This is how you got here. This is what happened. And it wasn't just like one event. It was a whole history of events that really sort of, sort of like a slippery slope of, of just uh, running away from God and getting away from God. So, uh, so number one, the reasons for their decline, reason why they're in Babylon to begin with, and then also to show the fate of the individual kings themselves. So beginning with Sol uh, King David's son, uh, Solomon, and then, and then going all the way through the kings in, in Israel and also in Judah as well. And then also um, to show them that they should learn from their past. I know that's something that... Um, you know, people talk about today, well, why, why do we, well, I, there's been attributed to different philosophers. Someone has said that Hegel said it. I've heard that uh, some other philosophers said it, but whoever said it, it's true. If there's anything we learn from history, it's that men learn nothing from history. <laughs> and um, so I think it's true, not only as we look at biblical history, but I think also in American history as well. We look at, at mm -hmm. our own past, you know, 200 years of history. Do we learn anything from that history? So, so if there's, is there anything we can learn from the history of the Israelites and, and the people in Judah? And I think there is. And then, uh, and then number four, so that's number one is the reasons why they're in Babylon to begin with. Number two, the fate of the individual kings, what actually became of these kings, what decisions did they make, what mistakes did they make. We shouldn't make those same mistakes because if we're going to, if we're now about to get out of Babylon and go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, we don't want to make the same mistakes that they did. So, yeah. um, so then also to show them they should learn from the past, that's number three. And then number four is, I think, perhaps one of the most important things, and that is to show evidence of God's faithfulness to his covenant. God made a covenant all mm -hmm. the way back in Genesis 12, when he called Abraham out, and he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you to a great nation. And then to David and, and, and also to Moses, he promised the land. And then to David in 2 Samuel 7, he promised that he's going to set up a king to reign over uh, Israel for forever in perpetuity. In fact, in um, Isaiah 53, we sort of see this, that there's this descendant from David that's going to come, and there's sort of this hint at resurrection, even in Isaiah 53, where this king is going to suffer and die. And so, um, so that's four possible reasons why the book was written. And so, uh, so essentially, it's sort of a continuation of the events that we see in First and Second Samuel. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it basically... You know, we hear, hear people say, and we, we sort of have talked about this before, Evan and I have talked about this, about how it, it technically wasn't a theocracy, uh, or excuse me, it technically wasn't a monarchy, it was a theocracy, uh, in which the kings of Israel and Judah were really vice regents with Yahweh. Mm -hmm. They were the, they were to actually rule in his stead. They were his representatives, and in as much as they followed him and obeyed his voice, then they would be blessed in the land. But in as much as they did not follow God and did not follow his voice, then God was going to drive them out of the land. So, so, um, so there is sort of a um, uh, the reason why. Sort of. Or, or let me back up. Trying to think of how to word this. Um, 
the the whole thing is going to be judged, like the whole rule of the kings. Like if you wonder what's the standard, what is the standard and why why is God judging? Why is God holding holding the kings to the standard? Because he wrote about it all the way back in Deuteronomy 17. This is something that Evan and I talked about. Mm-hmm. And that is that the, that God said, you know, you're not to have a king, but if you ever do ask for a king, then this is how you should uh, reign as a king. You should have a copy of the Torah uh, right beside you so you can be careful to follow it so that you will not follow after the other gods. And not only was he to be the political leader, but he was also to be the spiritual leader as well. So, so that is why God has had such high standards for these kings. They were not just any kings, because God's intention for the nation of Israel to begin with was that they represent Him on earth. Yeah, and they were going to be it was uh, even though um, people kind of make a big deal out of the fact that well, why did God choose Israel, Israelites? Well, He could have chosen anybody. He could have chosen the Persian. He could have chosen the Chinese or whoever. The purpose wasn't necessarily an ethnic thing per se. It was more like God's sovereign choice to choose this nation in which he's going to reveal himself to the world and he's going to show his patience his kindness his covenant faithfulness uh that uh it's used there's a, there's a hebrew word used throughout the old testament one of my favorite words is the word chesed you have to kind of cough something up when you say it but it's it's a ch it's a, it's a it's a so it's a chesed so chesed is co- is covenant faithfulness and so all throughout the kings, first and second kings, God is showing his covenant faithfulness, even to Solomon, when Solomon followed after other gods and was influenced by his wives, we're seeing a moment, uh, mm-hmm. God in his mer- he tempered his judgment with mercy because of the promise that he made with David and also mm-hmm. with Abraham back in Genesis 12. So, um, so it's a, it's a, it's almost like a first and second kings is like a, like a lesson book, not only for the Israelites to learn about their past, but also we get to look into it as well as Christians, as New Testament believers, to see that these principles, I think, are still in place, even though we're not Israel. I mean, we're not, we were not given promises, but we see, though, that uh, God can still work through our failure. If we fail and mess up, God can still work through that. God has mercy and grace. Um, God is uh, faithful to his word. And um, it's just really remarkable to see what God has done through his people, Israel. So um, I'll you know, stop it's, there. It's about, I mean, you, you see God being so patient, so uh, slow to anger, right? Abounding in steadfast love. Yes. And then you see the people over and over and over again, choosing these other gods. I was reading it the other day in preparation for this, thinking if I, it's like, if you're dating or married to someone and they just kept going and having an affair over and over again. I mean, you just, you've, you've, if you read it, sort of taking yourself out of the fact that maybe you're a Christian, you just feel so sorry for this God character, you know, Mm -hmm. like he keeps saying, all I want is for you to listen to me because I have your best in mind Mm -hmm. and you will flourish. And you keep whoring yourself out to these other gods. And then every time something goes wrong, it states, this is why it went wrong. It wasn't the wives per se, the wives took you away. And, and I mean, the wives weren't great, but my point is they pointed Solomon away to these pagan gods and pagan practices, which are really horrifying. So you're blaming the women. I mean, in Solomon's case, (laughs) I'm blaming Solomon for choosing those women because that's not what God said to do. But like, then you, you have these other characters where it says like they, they were loving God, but they kept the high places. They were loving God, but they made these like other shrines and bulls. And you're like, what are you doing? It'd be like, if my husband, I don't have a husband, but if I did, he came on me. He's like, Hey, listen, I love you, but don't go in the guest room. <laughs> I have someone in there. Like what the heck? Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we have Solomon. Things are going well, except he does have all these wives. I, and then, you know, God says that things are not going to go well for him because of that. He states it in first Kings 11. He talks about you forsaken me. You've worshiped these other gods. Um, I, I think I have two questions to to get us through Solomon and into the next one is like, what happened when he asked, he asked God for wisdom, right? There's this cool story. I mean, I think a lot of you learn about this in Sunday school, like he asked for wisdom. And so God was like, you asked for the right thing. So I'll give it to you or whatever. It's the uh, old Testament text in most lectionaries really this uh, this week. Yeah. In fact, I was going to, I was going to ask every time you, you mentioned the phrase high places that is, is that always a reference to idolatrous worship? pagan idolatrous worship yes it's an indirect because that was what the canaanites would practice they practiced Mm -hmm. uh they believed that the closer they could get in other words they would establish their altars on high 
In fact, it's uh, the Hebrew word is Bama, and they would put their altars on these high places. And that's because they thought that the closer they could get to the gods, mm-hmm. Baal, then the gods would hear their sacrifice. So the Israelites began to adopt this practice of giving sacrifice on high places. And that's where the good kings would actually tear down these altars and say, this is not mm-hmm. how you worship God, because very specifically, God in the Old Testament prescribed how he wanted to be worshipped. And this is not how, he, in fact, he explicitly told him, don't worship me the way that these Canaanite gods are going to worship, mm-hmm. uh, because I'm because how we worship God says something about God, and mm-hmm. um, and so there there's this intimate connection between the worship of God and the character of God, and and He's always always teaching His people about what it means to worship Him because it says something about who He is. Um, well, Solomon actually asked for wisdom in in First Kings chapter three verses four and fifteen. Um, so when David, uh, according to the chronology that we hold to, we believe that David uh, very likely was in his uh, early seventies when he passed away, and Solomon was probably fairly young, probably nineteen or twenty years old. So, um, so even before he was actually sort of um, coronated as king. Uh, even upon David's deathbed, uh, there was uh, some some intrigue and turmoil about who is going to succeed David as yeah. the rightful heir of the kingdom of Judah. Because, because you remember in 2 Samuel 7, God had already t- promised David, I'm going to establish your throne forever. And so uh, let me just speak to this a minute. I'm going to throw a big word out here to you guys. Um, it's a, it's, a, it's a word that Old Testament scholars and Near Eastern scholars use. It's, it's very well known about in the ancient world. It's called uh, primogeniture, which basically... Ah, yes, if I had a nickel. <laughs> it's basically the, the idea that your eldest son, your eldest firstborn son would succeed you as the rightful heir of your throne or your inheritance. That, so inherit, I cannot, like for us modern people, we don't really, it's not a big deal. I mean, it's some people like squabble over, you know, what their parents die and they live a big fortune. Other than that, we don't really care about what's the oldest, or the youngest, but back in the ancient world, it was primogeniture was like the rule of the day. But interestingly, God uh, in, 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 in announcing his uh, the people that he's going to use, he often goes outside of that sort of convention of naming the mm-hmm. firstborn. We see uh, with Isaac, not with Isaac, but with um, with many other, like Joseph. Joseph was chosen. I mean, God used him. God used a lot of people who were not necessarily the firstborn. David himself was the perfect example. You know, he brought brought forth all the, the you know, to, went to yeah. the, uh, Samuel to Jesse's house. David wasn't the firstborn necessarily. He was the youngest son. So, so very Jacob interesting. And Esau. Yeah. That's exactly right, Jacob and Esau. So we see again and again, God does. Sometimes God doesn't choose the firstborn son. So, so there was sort of when David passed away uh, in in First Kings chapter one verses five two through ten, there is a son by the name of Adonijah, who basically because he's he's actually about the fourth oldest son, but he was the oldest surviving son at the time of David's death, and so there was sort of this expectation that he was going to be the one to rightfully succeed uh, David in his throne, and. Uh, in the text itself, in First Kings and Chronicles as well, it doesn't quite actually explicitly state, but there was apparently an understanding between David and Bathsheba that it was going to be through Bathsheba's, uh, their relationship with Bathsheba, uh, Solomon, who's going to be the one who's uh, basically going to be the heir. So there was a sort of intrigue between Adonijah and, um, and basically Bathsheba. There was a concubine in David's harem. By the way, uh, he had a harem, <laughs> and uh, but because he was so old, he had not uh, had relations with her. Uh, the girl's name was uh, Abishag. What a name! You're gonna name <laughs> your kid Abishag, A B I S H A G, and um, so Adonijah goes to Bathsheba, and he and he sort of he thinks he's is the rightful heir, so he's sort of working the angles to try to get in to be the king, and so. At this time, uh, Solomon had sort of gotten word that, yes, you were going to be the successful heir. He's not quite reigning yet, but he sort of is sort of the unofficial official, you know, the one that's going to actually succeed David. So, uh, so basically, Adonijah goes to Bathsheba, and he asks for the hand of, uh, of this uh, Abishag. And uh, apparently, uh, according to the text itself, um, Adonijah was a handsome guy, and he sort of so probably Bathsheba didn't think too much about it. She thought, well, he's just trying to get a you know, like a good-looking girl for his you know wife, or whatever. So she was happy to to fix him up. 
But uh, when he went to go, uh, when, when basically he went to go get the uh, blessing from Solomon, Solomon knew that this is a, this is a, because here's the thing that I'll, I'll, most readers of the Old Testament may not know, but if you had control of a harem and you had the wife and a harem, then that was essentially, you had, you're laying rights to the throne. Solomon mm. knew this. So Solomon knew that he's not just trying to get a wife. He's trying yeah. to like insert himself. Manipulate. To be, yeah, exactly. So he didn't, he said, no, then I'm, I'm not going to do this. So this started this rift between uh, Adonijah and Solomon, essentially, eventually leading to the death of Adonijah. And um, so there was a lot of intrigue even starting out. But it's how David actually uh, proclaims Solomon as king is very interesting. He has him actually sit on the back of his donkey because in, in, in Israel, the king on the back of a donkey was going to be the servant of the people. He was going to be mm. the slave or the servant of the people. So he has, he has uh, Solomon get on his own donkey, and he rides him through Jerusalem. And so when Jesus, of course, rides on the back of a donkey – this is a pro- proclamation. Jesus specifically said, get the donkey, you know, get it on. Mm-hmm. He's laying claim to be the mm-hmm. rightful descendant of David. I love that. I mean, that. this is like, mm-hmm. a, this is awesome. Very powerful image. And by the way, we only call donkeys asses at the Audio on Tap. <laughs> okay. I don't know if you knew that or not. <laughs> we call a lot of things. Let yeah. me stop. <laughs> hey, but quickly, um, there, there is this extremely poignant story as well with Absalom, you know, one, one another of David's children who tried to yes. really usurp the throne. Um, and, uh, he, uh, for example, he essentially drives David out of Jerusalem and he, and he takes over, if you will, I don't know, he, he sleeps with 10 of David's concubines, mm-hmm. I believe. Yep. Uh, uh, I think they're concubines and not wives anyway, but that was the same thing. It was like, well, I'm established. Yes. established yeah. they're, they're, so yes, a lot of dysfunction and then Absalom is killed and it breaks David's heart and he kind of famously wails, oh, Absalom, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? And you, we're all going have you been reading the last two two chapters? The dude's yeah. been usurping you and trying to kill you. <laughs> but like with Saul, uh, there is a soft spot that David has uh, even for people that try to kill him, which is kind of weird. Uh, but David's a better Absalom's guy than I am. the one with the hair problem, right? Did he have a hair? I don't know. Who's the guy that his hair got caught in the tree and then? Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. I don't know if it's yes. his hair per se or if it's he- his head, but yeah, the 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 ass just keeps walking yeah. on. Evan just and- wants to see how many sort of quasi curse word loopholes he can. It's, it's in the King James Bible. It's it's the it's the, it's the, the holy, authorized. It's holy writ. So. Oh my gosh. Uh, but anyway, yeah. But then ten of David's men stab Absalom as he's hanging there from the tree. I, is that? But Ted, is that supposed to be funny? I mean, <gasps> seriously, like, is no, there? Well, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, okay. It, there could be, you not to, to say it's not just true. symbolic, maybe of something. Yeah, right? you know, not to say it's untrue, but you know, sometimes it's almost like God humiliates. Well, if ten, you know, if he had sex with ten of the concubines, do you think ten people killed him just to sort of symbolize the, the justice? I don't know. Could be. Yeah. Anyway, that's a I've, I've taken us down a rabbit hole. Well, no, okay, so, but you walked us through Solomon being king, yeah. and I and I want to try to get to the other end of Solomon's kingship because there's so much good stuff there. But I feel like most people know, like they know the story of the two women coming with the baby, yeah. and they know that he was very wealthy. Then maybe people know that he built the temple and a palace for himself. Mm-hmm. But at the end of Solomon's life, maybe we can skip ahead. People, if they yes. want to, you know, not. This is a spoiler, but this is thousands of years old, so I feel like that's okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's a Jeroboam, Rehoboam situation. Maybe talk to us about this kind of civil – people talk about a civil war. I just reread it. It's not so much of a war. It's just a, like civil division. Well, uh, So talk yes. us through that. Yes, absolutely. So, so we're getting toward the end of Solomon's life, and toward the end of his life, of course, he starts out – and God actually meets him at, at, um, at Gibeon, and he also speaks to him in Jerusalem and reaffirms the covenant with uh, Solomon that he made with David. And so uh, God is showing his love to Solomon and showing his grace, but as Solomon begins to move further and further away from God, he, do, he, he actually violates two things that God explicitly told him not to do in Deuteronomy 17. He said, do not Women want and horses. wives – and horses. And uh, why horses? Interestingly, uh, because it was, uh, well, for one, come, one reason is that uh, they would have to go back to Egypt. It says, you shall not multiply horses, and you shall not come back to Egypt, because you shall not go back this way again. And it was sort of uh, symbolic of mm-hmm. uh, going back to slavery and, and yeah. indicating that you're 
relying on your power was for somebody else and not me. Because remember, even though we were calling this a monarchy, it's technically a theocracy in which the kings are actually vice regents under God. So, so it's not a, like what political philosophers today would call a full monarchy. It's more of a, a again a theocracy. So, um, so he was told not to multiply wives. And so let's go back to the whole thing in, in chapter three, where he asked for wisdom. And, and he did that, and, he, and God gave him wisdom because as a young man, he wanted to reign over Judah or Israel as, uh, as someone who had wisdom. And so God was pleased with that. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about his people, mm-hmm. and he wanted to, uh, to have the wisdom to because he thought he didn't have the experience. So that was actually a really smart thing to ask for. And so God gave him the wealth as well. He was wise. How was he so wise to ask for wisdom before he asked for wisdom? Exactly. Wow. It's a, it's a conundrum. How are we going to figure this out? <laughs> <laughs> In any case, uh, he did multiply wives, he multiplied horses. And this is yeah. not uncommon. This is not uncommon, again, for the ancient Near East um, because uh, of the inheritance issues and also because there were some perhaps some pride issues as well. He wanted mm-hmm. to be like the other kings and wanted to um, because this is a time you got to remember when uh, Egypt was to the south. To the north, you've got Syria and you've got Lebanon. You've got uh, well, eventually, what's going to rise to power are the uh, neo Assyrians uh, that are in Iraq, modern day Iraq and northern Assyria. But you've got people marauding around, and they're, I mean, if you're going to build a city, if you don't build a wall around your city, you're just kind of setting yourself up. So Solomon, I think, in his in his wisdom, he was thinking that this is a good thing to multiply horses. And in fact, uh, I have a book on my, on my shelf back in the back behind me uh, from just recently published this year from Eric Klein uh, from the uh, University of um, no George Washington University. It's called Digging Up uh, Digging Up Armageddon, and it's about the site of Megiddo and how there was uh, back years ago there was uncovered, and there's still some debate about it among archaeologists as to whether or not these were actually Solomon's stables because mm. of some of the dating of it. But they actually uncovered, if the, if the stratum is correct, they uncovered these very large stables that were in Megiddo. And, and so Solomon, uh, he enlarged these, these fortifications, and, and he did all the stuff, to, I think, to protect Israel. But in any case, he, his wives, because he actually um, – it wasn't necessarily the wives per se that although that was wrong in and of itself it was their gods and it That's was right. their that that really led him astray and uh he began to um he didn't quite fully abandon yahweh because he still mm-hmm. abandoned yahweh the problem was with solomon was really going to be the problem with israel and judah for the rest of their tenure as in the land and that was syncretism yep. and that it was it wasn't just outright idolatry mm-hmm. it was idolatry but it was i want to worship god alongside these other gods and we and so, see a bunch of that in the New Testament, and then we see a bunch of that in modern day, right? Like you yes. want to follow Jesus, but you also want to do things your own way Absolutely. or pick and choose from what seems to be best to you. I mean, this is just age old. It's yeah, built into absolutely. us almost to want that. Sure is. Absolutely. It's human nature for sure. Um, so uh, toward the end of his reign, in fact, there's there an episode in 1 Kings chapter 11 uh, that many people don't, are not aware of. It's really fascinating in any of its own right. His name is Ahijah. Uh, A-H-I-J-A-H. I think I was, that's I one of the story. ones I was saying, Ahijah, then there's Ahijah, Ahijah. Ahijah. You're probably, uh, right. it's probably Ahijah, but, uh, do you know the story, Sarah, in, in chapter 11? Is this the thing about, um, Jeroboam finding out yeah. that he's going to be king? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So he goes to Jeroboam. So Jeroboam is actually serving under Solomon and he's actually from the tribe of Ephraim. And, uh, he's so some the, sort of a military captain kind of thing, right? Well, yeah, yes. He, he was a, uh, civil servant under Solomon. He built okay. public works under Solomon. So he built, uh, oh, okay. the, some of the, some of the, uh, revetment works and walls around Jerusalem, that perhaps the Milo itself that we archaeologists have uncovered. Uh, really fascinating guy in and of himself. But in any case, he was, um, he essentially was approached by this prophet, Ahijah, and basically he tore his cloak into 12 pieces, his mm-hmm. brand new cloak, 12, broke it and ripped it into 12 little pieces. He gave uh, Jeroboam 10 and said, mm-hmm. you're going to, you're going to inherit the kingdom because Solomon has gone after he's, he's departed from me. God has departed from, from him. And now the kingdom is going to be given to you. And, uh, and basically he makes a covenant with him, uh, sort of sounds like second Samuel seven, although it doesn't, it didn't really negate second Samuel seven. It's right. sort of basically saying that, listen, if, if Solomon, if David's line is not going to follow me, then I'm going to go with a King who will follow me apparently, if you will. So, so this was, this all happened. And, um, and then, uh, 
Well, oh, so, so let me pause you. So the yeah. so the ten rem, the ten pieces of fabric represent ten tribes that will be under Jeroboam, but Correct. there's two tribes left that that God through a Ahijah or Abijah, whichever one we're on now, uh, says I'm gonna hold those out of my like love for David and yep. sort of like That's as right. a a nod to that relationship, right? That's and right. So That's tell right. us about the tribe division. The two tribes are which two tribes? Judah and so, Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin. Yes, correct. Okay. And um, and Jeroboam is actually from the tribe of Ephraim, and now they were already now there was already a rift that happened that was sort of already brewing between mm-hmm. these uh, the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah because they were the largest of the two tribes. In fact, Judah was the one to lead the way out of the wilderness into the Holy Land or into the Promised Land. And in uh, at Shiloh or Shiloh, as we call it, uh, when the Israelites uh, under Joshua uh, mm-hmm. settled there and they established a tabernacle there, that was the first capital of Israel for 400 years until Solomon essentially built the temple in Jerusalem uh, in about 966 BC. So from that spot at Shiloh, that is where the uh, tribes were allotted, the allotment of the tribes. So they were basically given bits and pieces of land. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to spread all throughout Judah and Israel, or rather it was just Israel, the promised land. But as it, as it turns out, Judah was the most populous of the tribes. So they got the lion's share of the land and they inherited the area around Jerusalem. The one closest to them was Benjamin. So the tribe, the boundaries of Benjamin were the ones uh, closest to Jerusalem. And then uh, to the north, was given the 10 tribes, and the next largest of the 10 tribes was Ephraim. That's why sometimes uh, you see interchange throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Israel, sometimes we call Ephraim, and mm-hmm. Ephraim, Israel. It just essentially t- is talking about the northern 10 tribes. Um, interestingly, uh, so Solomon dies, and uh, the, his son, then now, th- now keep in mind, during this time, his son, uh, Rehoboam, this is the son of Solomon, Jeroboam, it's kind of hard, it's kind of confusing. Actually, I think it's helpful that they sort of rhyme. So you can kind of keep track of it. Like Jeroboam is not related to Solomon. He's a civil servant. Guy comes to him, tells him he's going to have 10 tribes. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. And they, that's right. They they don't work well together. So, okay. So at this time, oh, there's another little key piece of information I've left out. So when uh, there was sort of this interim time period in which uh, Jeroboam sort of there was sort of uh, apparently Solomon uh, the text is not really clear about this uh, tried to take the life of Jeroboam and he fled to Egypt uh, and he lived There's a lot under, of fleeing to Egypt happening in the Bible isn't there it is he fled to Egypt and he uh, actually was under the protection of a pharaoh by the name of Shishak or Shishank the first who was actually going to invade Judah and Jerusalem later and huh. it's, it's actually known about, and, and it's very well attested in the archaeological record as well, this pharaoh named Shishak. And uh, so he flees there. Now, but now, now that Solomon's dead, uh, apparently Jeroboam gets word, and his people say, hey, guess what? So, uh, Solomon's dead now. So he goes back to, he goes back to uh, Judah or back, back to Israel, and Rehoboam is now uh, getting ready to uh, have a coronation uh, service, and he's mm-hmm. going to have it at Shechem. Why Shechem? Because that is where God appeared to Abraham, and that's where also when the Israelites came out of the uh, came out of the wilderness after forty years of wandering, they renewed the covenant at Shechem, and mm-hmm. Joshua set up a standing stone, a masabah, at Shechem. And I, I've actually visited the site. And then, uh, and then the, the the other thing that happened at Shechem was that Joseph was actually buried there, and mm-hmm. um, I had a really cool little quick story about that. I was there in twenty fourteen, and uh, the group that I was with. Uh, we were going to try, we visited the site of Shechem, the archaeological site of Shechem, and uh, the Arabs, because it's, it's primarily Palestinian territory now, so there are no Israelis that actually live near Shechem. It's, it's the modern-day city of Nablus, and uh, it's a very war-torn uh, city. Uh, we drove through it. There's like bullet holes everywhere in, in the buildings, but mm. the archaeological site is uh, sort of a park, and you can go during the day. It's kind of safe, but you probably don't want to go there at night. It's you know a little dangerous for non Palestinians probably, mm-hmm. um, but in any case, we got to go, and they said, "Well, uh, there's the uh, the tomb or the cenotaph of Joseph, where Joseph was actually buried." And the and so apparently there was a stone, and there's some good historical and archaeological evidence that actually points to that site. And so I got to visit the site where Joseph's body very likely was laying, uh, but it was very likely carried later further into Judah and buried maybe perhaps near Jerusalem. 
but mm. uh, we've never found the body of Joseph, but we know from the Old Testament that he was actually em- embalmed like an Egyptian. So it's possible yeah. that we could find the body of Joseph. But anyway, a little side note on that. So, so basically, Rehoboam is going to try to be coronated there at, at Shechem because of the significance of the site in Israelite history. This is when the nation is going to get started again. They renew the covenant at Shechem, and they they Basically, the Jews swear their allegiance to Yahweh and the covenant that he made to them there. You know, we will. That, we all yeah, know Mount, it's like a false promise, but yeah. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. They it at the time. <laughs> yeah. W- one side, they talk about the blessings. The other side, they talk about the curses. And then and mm-hmm. Joshua has them, you know, will you follow the, the Torah? Will you follow the law? And yes, we will. We'll follow God. And so this is a great significance. And so at the very time in which Rehoboam should have been celebrating his coronation, um, Jeroboam's people send they send emissaries. Apparently, there's some festivities going on before the coronation. They send emissaries to the uh, to Shechem to meet with Rehoboam because uh, Judah at the time, uh, in, under Solomon, because of his heavy taxation, was uh, was basically they were overly taxed basically because mm-hmm. uh, Solomon was building his she built ships had chariots had a lot of gold and big palaces. They were you know. overly taxed and overly worked. Right? Oh, yeah, over, yeah, exactly. It was very oppressive. So, yeah. so basically, Jeroboam's people went to Rehoboam and said, "Listen, uh, can you lighten the load on the taxes a little bit? Yeah. You know, we are just we're just overwhelmed, we're overworked, and uh, and again, at this time, apparently, Jeroboam had decided not to, even though Ahijah had already told him." I'm going to get, you know, the king is going to go to you. He's not going to like try to execute a coup or anything like that, but he sends his emissaries to Rehoboam to plead with him. He wants a few days to think about it. Rehoboam mm-hmm. does. And then he comes up. He actually, interestingly, uh, does not consult his father's uh, advisors. He consults his own advisor. Who, who well, he does both. Age. He, he asks both. the older, right. wiser elders, right. and they say, lighten the load. This That's is right. a fresh start. And then That's he goes right. to the younger people that are his friends. They're like, which is something it's, the story is so great because we it all is. do this, right? Like we, we say yes. to God, we want wisdom, tell us what to do. And then we, maybe we have an understanding of what that is from reading scripture. And then we're like, mm, let me ask somebody else. <laughs> and that's what he does. He asks these, right. these young fools, which are his friends. And they're like, no, you should make it harder. And he's like, yeah. that sounds right. Oh, God. Yep. And so then he does, he's like, no, I'm going to make it worse, which actually harkens back to Egypt when Pharaoh was like, now you can't have the straw or whatever for the bricks. Right. That's right. I mean, anyway. Okay. That's right. Sorry. Yeah. My, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions, yeah. which, which yeah. is a, which is a whip with metal on it. Oh, okay. That's what that is. They, they didn't just carry around cages of scorpions. Like no. work hard or <laughs> we're going to unleash one of these on you. Okay. Yeah, it's sort of like a precursor to the cat of nine tails in, in the New Testament. Mm. But it, Jesus, it, it, Jesus, it just meant Jesus says, uh, Jesus says what father would say to a child who asked for an egg and give him a scorpion. Hmm. Uh, that now, does bring some different meaning to that. It's like punishment yeah. versus blessing. Mm. Yeah. Huh. Exactly. Okay. But so, 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 the, so, he's, so anyway, nice so, so essentially Rehoboam on the, his parent coronation day escapes with his life and Jeroboam is crowned uh, by his people as the king of Israel, the only tribes to remain loyal to Rehoboam were, of course, Judah and Benjamin. And so that is where the beginning of the, the kingdom split. Okay, so, so tell us about the north and the south, who's where. And, so, and from here on out, we refer to them as Israel and Judah, even though it's like correct. basically like the territory with 10 and the territory with two. Right. Correct. Like Walk us through that. Correct. So uh, because of the tribal boundaries of where they already were, uh, mm. They were already sort of settled in their areas. Uh, basically, uh, Judah is in the south toward around Jerusalem and just to the area just a little bit southeast of Jerusalem. And then to the north and along the coastline, you've got Israel, and uh, which, which they were actually really close to Syria. And uh, interestingly enough, you have all the kings. And one of the little insight into as we look at the kingdom as it split geographically and also politically and spiritually as well, um, we have a continual line of kings from judah from one family so you have a dynasty whereas okay. in israel there are nine dynasties hmm. so in all of them in fact none of the kings of israel were actually considered good none of them okay uh, they all uh, eventually caused israel to go astray which is why they actually went off into captivity first uh by the by the assyrians interesting um, okay and, and it started actually there's an interesting little uh sort of uh aphorism um you may have heard this it's an old greek proverb uh, well begun is half done 
Yeah. Uh, and then uh, there's sort of another principle that uh, Aquinas talks about as, as, as it refers to theology. But if you have a little bit, of, if you have a little small error in the very beginning, yeah. and you start that one little area, the further you go in time, the, it's going to just diverge out until by the time 10 years down the road, you're so far out. And so that's really where it started. Jeroboam, because of the uh, sort of like, it, think about like football, it's like, no, it's us and them. You know, it's like they're, whatever they do, we're going to do the opposite, you know? So uh, temple yeah. worship in Jerusalem, of course, that's where God prescribed it. And Jeroboam began to set up uh, yep. tabernacles and temples in other areas and uh, ascribing priests that were actually giving sacrifices that were not Levites. Mm-hmm. Again, not going, and what did God already say in Deuteronomy 17? If you're going to reign, you're going to have a copy of the Torah beside me. If you don't, yep. I'm going to drive you out of the land. I will take the kingdom from your hands. So a uh, King after king after king in Israel, that's all they did was to uh, incorporate idolatrous practices of the Canaanites into and try to weave it together with yeah. the practices of the worship of Yahweh. And God is a jealous God. And I know that that's, doesn't sound really cool to modern people. No, it but, goes back to the the marriage metaphor. He's jealous in the way that one mm-hmm. ought to be jealous. Like mm-hmm. you want your spouse to be all yours. Exactly. And, uh, right. Let me let me ask the, the Levites were not given land. Right? Were they given a portion of land? Um, yeah, I think it was Jude. I think it was be around Judah. Okay. Um, so, but so the 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 temple was in Judah, right? So this when we talk about the southern Jerusalem. kingdom, it's only the two tribes. Uh, yeah, it's is a temple's in Jerusalem, and that's in the which that's is in, in Judah. Judah. Yeah, right. And and, and, and and by the way, that's where we get the word Jew from because they're Judeans and da, that's da, right. Da, da. That's why I, I've never liked the word. I've never liked. I don't even think Jew is accurate. You know, it's it's a it's a relic of language we should say hebrew people or i don't know something we should come up something else anyway (laughs) but um yeah but so the but the levites then would have been at the service of the other two tribes and right i mean in theory the the benjamin and judah well they would have been at the service of everybody yes right yeah they really they would have been in the other kingdom they're not benjamites they're not yeah i've I've just never was clear well like kind of where they fit in because if there weren't levites then who was doing the sacrifices at the temple and all of them were subject to the law. All of them were. And yeah. when they did not, do, in fact, we see this back in uh, back in the Torah with um, um, Nadab and Abihu when they're offering, yeah. you know, they're offering incorrect like fire on the altar in in yeah. uh, in, in the tabernacle. So they're all subject to the Torah. Um, the point is that I think. Oh, let me go back to uh, Solomon. So when he dedicates the temple in Jerusalem, when Solomon and this is an interesting, this is a whole another rabbit trail. We won't get into it, but let me just say that that date, the date of the dedication of Temple, uh, temple of Solomon, that's in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 1. This is a, to me, it's a bedrock chronological dating mm-hmm. point to many other events in the Old Testament. Like that's why I hold to the early date of the Exodus, because there's no reason to, there's no reason to allegorize 1 Kings 6, 1. It's not allegory, it's narrative it's history yeah history it's essentially history yeah i like that ted worked in the exodus we're like in kings and he's like <laughs> yeah you what, know what what was the date though throw that in, in there 966 966 bc okay so just for big picture you know david is around you know a thousand something you know de- temple dedicated 966 under solomon and the the babylonian exile is 586 587 so you're That's talking correct. about you know, 400 ish years. Now the, the, the Assyrian, and I know we're getting there, but the, the Assyrian conquest of the Northern, the 10 tribes is when is that, that, that hasn't happened yet. That's still a couple hundred years off from say 966. Is that no, right? Oh yeah. That is, um, I want to say 538 BC ish. Oh, so it's after the Babylonian exile. No, it's, it's actually before, I'm sorry. Where is, you ask about the Assyrian of Israel, right? This is Tiglath Pileser the Third is who that would be. Okay, so I mean, we'll, just get, to, be, we'll get to that. I always no, it's get seven, it's seven. Excuse me, it's seven thirty-eight BC. Okay, so yes. so but so between so the in the Assyrian exile is mostly the ten tribes in the north. Is that right? They were sort of absolutely. Okay, the Babylonian exile is is Judah, right? The the two correct. Of, right. Okay. Correct. And those are two different empires, and yes, yeah, so I can talk about okay. I can give you the the dynamics of that if you want. You guys want to talk about that? Well, let's pause that for a second because yeah. that that comes later. Because so where we are right now is we've got the Jeroboam Rehoboam split, northern southern kingdom, um, two in one, ten in the other. 
And, and Jeroboam is like a guy that you're rooting for when you read it, because he's like, he's supposed to be this great guy. He asks for the load to be lightened. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, well, we don't live where the temple is. We're going to have to do something. I know we'll make golden calves. That worked <laughs> yeah, so well exactly. the last time. So he makes golden calves. He makes the, he like celebrates the high places. He makes priests out of non-Levites when he had the Levites at his disposal. Um, and then someone comes along and curses him. Well, they actually curse the altars and they make this prophecy about Josiah and then Jeroboam's hand shrivels up. These are the stories that if you skim through, you don't get to read. Uh, but if you read the full thing, you're like, wait, did I just read that right? His hand like shrivels up and then he apologizes and the Lord grows it back. I'm telling you, when people talk about how mean God is, I'm like, just go read the Old Testament. Like he is constantly giving people things they don't deserve. Like you don't deserve to live at all, but I'm going to give you your hand back because you said you were sorry. Like anyway, um, but okay. So then we just get this list of Kings from, so Jeroboam and Rehoboam are the first and then onward from there, each, the Northern and Southern, they just list them. And sometimes we get stories with them. And sometimes it's pretty small. It's like, so-and-so. Reigned yeah. for 40 years and yeah. did what was honorable or pleasing in the sight of the Lord, right? It almost Correct. never says honorable. Almost never says that. Yeah. yeah. Did, yes. How many kings do you think were honorable? Something like two, isn't it? Probably maybe three. Um, Hezekiah, Josiah. Maybe, yeah. maybe just like start listing some that are notable um, that maybe we need to know, good or bad. Okay. Um, Asa is considered a good king. Asa is after, so you have uh, in Judah, so you have uh, Rehoboam, Abijah, or Abijah, however you want to say that, uh, Asa, and there's a, there's a lot of co-regencies as well. In fact, there's interestingly, when historians uh, try to reconstruct the history of uh, the kings of Israel and Judah, there are some chronological issues that seem to not mm-hmm. quite work out with like other uh dates that we know in history and there's a really good book on this i know that you guys are not asking about this but i'll just throw this in there it's written by uh, an american scholar by the name of edwin field and the name of the book is called the mysterious numbers of the hebrew kings and this book is brilliant because what what field does is he reconciles the history of the kings of israel and judah with the surrounding nations so like uh, assyria and babylonia and things like that and what he discovered is that that uh, there are overlaps of reigns of some of the kings and uh, of, of, in other words, the king would like, and his son would reign together for a period of years. So, so Asa, there's a co-regency with Jehoshaphat. He was considered to be good. Well, um, sort of, I mean, I, I have him in my notes because, and, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to beat a dead horse here. Maybe we shouldn't have a horse at all. And not to confuse Asa with a donkey. Oh, Correct. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, ha, ha. <laughs> um, ASA. That one's an actual easy one, right? But so Asa is the father, Jehoshaphat is the son. And there's a passage in First Kings that says, and everything he, Jehoshaphat, followed the ways of his father Asa, the good king, and did not stray from them. And then it's not even a full sentence later, it's just a semicolon. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The high places, however, were not removed and the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. It's like the, the passage I just read could be read over and, and is in there so mm. many times. It's like they did mostly good, but also mm. just like a little bit of a fair with the against your spouse. It's like it's just so common mm. that you start to just read it like this rote thing. But every time it's this assault against the Lord. Yeah. It just, it breaks my heart because when you read it and you remember things like the Exodus right, and like creation and all these moments where God has just blessed his people and they're like, we like you, but we're seeing other people. It's just so. Yeah. yeah and going, going back to this being written during the exile, I mean, yeah. you know, there really is a difference in what we'll call Israel, uh, you know, after the return, right? I mean, there is a real seemingly earnest dedication of that mm. second second temple judaism yep where there really is a, a a concerted effort in fact we might even say it veered strict you know into legalism because the pharisees and sadducees and so on and so forth mm-hmm. uh, are developed during that 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 period but they really there really does seem to be an interest in like not screwing it up again yeah and so it's almost like there's a real difference in attitude of you know this first wave there were these people were so i mean really in the entire old testament really it's like they were so incredibly blessed up until the exile so incredibly blessed by god they were just they just they just they just were so they just smacked god right in the face they were so they just took advantage of his grace to such a great extent so absolutely and to, to sarah's point earlier that she was just saying um 
about how he did good, but then he did this. It's, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. God, pres- you know, the scripture presents warts and all. And mm-hmm. uh, for better or worse, that's sort of like we are as well. I mean, we're, we're mm-hmm. inconsistent performers. Some of us, I mean, many of us, I mean, I know that in your own Christian life, since we're talking about lessons learned, you know, you, uh, you may have a desire to follow the Lord, and, but you mess up. And uh, these people messed up and they, some, maybe perhaps there were altars that they should have torn down. Just like today, we have altars that we should tear down, that we want to worship the Lord, but maybe there's something in our life that we should get out as well. So uh, even though we're not kings, we're not ruling over a people, uh, we're still, you know, live our lives before God. So there's even lessons that we can learn as well. Um, but yeah, sure, can I ask a, a, a quick question. I, I'm, I know we're maybe close to out of time, but Josiah, yeah. um, I've always found the, the, this kind of story of like, oh, that's where that book has been for. Yeah, like some rando is like, I saw this on the edge of the. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, normally when you do construction projects, it unleashes the demons that, that are, you know, in your household. Y'all know that, right? When you watch ghost hunting shows. I anyway, scrub my house so, with sage so that doesn't happen. Well, and circles of salt. But, um, oh my gosh. but the, we're joking. Yeah. Yeah. We're joking. The, the, um, but, but anyway, they're, they're like literally is a construction project at the temple. And it's like, oh, the, the Deuteronomic codes were found. So Josiah's, a reformer. He's seen as a reformer to get back to the ways of God. So he's one of the good kings. Maybe just say a word about that unusual story. Yeah, he was. He, he's a fascinating guy. I've always found Josiah really interesting. In fact, I remember years ago when I was uh, pastoring a church in North Carolina, I um, preached a couple sermons on him. He's just. I found the story so compelling and so amazing. Uh, they're building the you know the you know the temple's being repaired and they find the copy of the law. It's been lost. They read it. And he begins to see that what they're doing is actually wrong, which in and of itself, you're like, why was it even there? Why was it not being read? And which reinforces the whole thing of Deuteronomy 17 of why they yeah. should have had the law to begin with. Well, and how, how far removed are you that you don't just remember what's right yeah. and wrong? Exactly. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and also the context of where this was, where his sort of uh realm of influence was and it was even though he was a king of judah um he actually died at uh at megiddo at the battle of megiddo uh against the egyptian pharaoh nico ii uh this is in 609 bc um he's a fascinating guy and he wanted to institute he essentially tore down the high places of the asherah and the Baals. these were uh located very closely to uh megiddo is close to Syria. And uh, here in Chicago, I lead trips uh, to the museum here at the Oriental Institute. And uh, there are two Baal idols, actually, that were excavated at Megiddo. And um, one of them, actually, I'm not because I, I tell my tour guests this, and he really does. He looks like a jazz artist from like New Orleans. It's so funny. It's like, and the other one actually looks like a pharaoh. So these are two little statues of Baal. And uh, these were in Megiddo. This was in the territory of Israel. And about the time of when Solomon would have been, or excuse me, when uh, Josiah would have been reigning. So uh, so he did die at this, really very sadly, at this uh, battle of Megiddo. So what was happening toward the end of his reign, and this is toward the end of Judah, toward the end of when Judah's about to go into go off to captivity. We haven't talked about Israel yet. They actually went before uh, with mm-hmm. the Assyrians because they actually, this is actually recorded in, there's actually some crossover. I know we haven't gotten into prophets, but there's some crossover with uh, Kings and the book of Isaiah as well. Isaiah yeah. 7 talks about Ahaz and uh, Hezekiah. And uh, these, these were two good kings, or actually one good king. Ahaz wasn't good, but Hezekiah was. But Ahaz essentially uh, made this alliance with these, these, these people that were coming into power on the scene to the north. They were called the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a, a Syrian king by the name of Tiglath-Pileser III. And uh, it, basically, uh, the animosity had gotten so great between the two kingdoms uh, that Israel in the north, uh, Reza and Pekah, the son of Remali, had made an alliance with the king of Syria that was its own independent state. That basically they were going to invade Judah and kick off, kick out Ahaz from the throne and establish their own th- king. So you can read about this in Isaiah seven. It very clearly says it, it says that you know um, the word came down that the uh, Israelites had made an alliance with the Syrians. So uh, Ahaz went to uh, Isaiah the prophet and said, "Listen, 
we got to do something about this because there's this alliance. They're going to kick me off the throne. And Ahaz, or excuse me, Isaiah essentially says, uh, don't worry about this alliance because it's not going to happen. It's the, the thing that you fear is not going to take place. In fact, the actual words that it uses, I think it's very interesting in light of our own day in which conspiracy theories abound. He says, do not call conspiracy what everyone calls conspiracy. Um, hmm. there, was a, there was a lot of words that were going around that, you know, we're about to be overthrown. There's this secret force that's going to drive me out of the throne. He was the son of David. I mean, God established his throne if he trusted God. So basically, Isaiah says to Ahaz, listen, here's the deal. I'm just kind of paraphrase this. Here's the deal, Ahaz. And, and Isaiah is speaking to him, and he says, you just ask God for a sign that he's going to be with you, and God will give you that sign, whether it's in the highest heights or the lowest lows. You just ask God for a sign. He's going to be with you, and he'll give you the sign. I mean, can you imagine being given that, like saying, hey, you just whatever, God, whatever you sign you want, just ask God for that sign. And Ahaz says, I will not ask God for a sign. I will not Ooh. test the Lord. And then, and then Isaiah says prophetically, he says, he says, you will weary men, but will you weary my God also? He says, therefore, the mm. Lord himself will give you a sign. This has nothing to do with his faithfulness at this point. It has to do with God keeping the promise that he made to David. And he says that the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this is a very interesting prophecy. Not only did it, rely, did it relate to the prophecies or the, to the time of the 8th century B.C., but it also had, it looked ahead to a prophecy about a coming child who's going to mm -hmm. be born, a child of promise, Name Emmanuel, God with us. So it's a lot of powerful stuff there. Which in both cases is interesting that we can't even ask for the right thing and yet God will bring it and provide it for us. Exactly. Right? In, in, spite in, of in both the double fulfillment of the first and the second, I mean, the second being this, the cosmic right. version of it. Exactly. Okay, but there so, were... Well, yeah. I was just going to say, because we are sort of running out of time, Okay. Let, let me just sort of set. So we've got all of these kings happening. You've got people in the North, people in the South. Good kings and bad kings, though there's no good kings in the northern ten tribes of Israel, um, they get carted off by the Neo Assyrians. Yep. A couple hundred years later, the uh, Judah and Babylon—I mean, sorry, Judah and Benjamin—that are in the south get carted off by the Babylonians. Uh, but in the middle of that, as you have all these kings happening, God is also sending prophets, like a lot of prophets. Yes. Now we're not going to get into this. In fact, you've done so well to not do this. I told Ted not to talk too much about prophets because <laughs> we're recording a whole other podcast later on the prophets. But I, I think it is important to say these kings were just not left on their own to like find the law, lose the law, screw things up. Like God is providing all along the way prophets to help them, tell them what to do, speak into the lives of the kingship and to the lives of the people. And this is where we get all of the stories that people probably remember from being little, like Elijah and Elisha and eventually Isaiah. And then there's a lot of really freaky small ones. Like if y'all want a story to freak you out, read the story of Micaiah. That's some crazy junk right there. Like, I don't know that I remember that one. Ooh, I'll tell you after we get off. Okay. It's so good. Um, and it's got like pagany stuff in it. Anyway, um, and, and we can talk more about the prophets later, but uh, I wonder if there are any of the either prophet connections to the kings or any other stories about the kings that you want to throw in before we kind of close this out. Yes. Uh, I mean, there's, wow, there's so much you can say. I'll tell you just one, you, because Sarah, you sort of uh, earlier in, in our podcast today, you sort of hinted at this about how, how uh, the people of Israel sort of committed spiritual prostitution, basically mm -hmm. by following up their other gods. And one of the most, I'll just say this as a blanket statement that and I've read this in an article years ago by a scholar here in Wheaton, actually, uh, Philip, actually Leland Riken wrote this, that God doesn't bypass our imaginations to communicate to us. And when he's using these prophets, he's not just using them in their prophetic utterance. He's using their very lives. He's using mm -hmm. their flesh and blood example of their lives in full color, dramatic effect to communicate powerful truth because he's really trying to get across to them the importance of covenant faithfulness to himself. And so uh, two really stand out to me. Uh, well, Elijah is one. He confronts the prophets of Baal mm -hmm. on Mount Carmel. That's, that's an amazing, everybody knows that story. But the other one is Hosea. God tells mm -hmm. Hosea to go take a wife of prostitution. Mm -hmm. He tells him to go find a, a, go find a wife. She's a pro, and, and she's going to be a prostitute and she's going to, she's going to leave you and follow after other lovers. But when she does this, 
you go after her and you go get her. I mean, who, how'd you like to give that ministry? You know, Hey, here's what, here's a ministry I got for you. Go get a wife. And probably like, okay. And then you're like, wait a minute, hang on. She's going to, she's going to leave you again and again and again, but you pursue after her. This this is like, what kind of, is this, is God crazy for doing this? No, this was an image that God has kept. The, even though Israel and Judah have left him again and again and again, God is not forgotten the covenant and he will remain faithful. So really the lesson of first and second Kings is, is really the blanket idea that his people were not faithful to the covenant. When they were, they were blessed, but when they got away from him, then God certainly kept the covenant and they actually experienced the consequences for breaking the covenant. And that was removal from the land and experiencing all the curses that mm-hmm. go along with the leaving. And this is in Deuteronomy uh, 28 and 29, Leviticus 26 outlines blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. It was written about before the exodus, before they even got in the land, they knew what was expected of them. And God sent the, the prophets to remind them again and again of the promises that he is going to uh, keep in, uh, in keeping the promise that he made with the three major covenants are the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic. These are the three anchoring covenants. And if you get those three covenants, you really can understand the rest of First and Second Kings, First and Chronicles, the prophets, because all the prophets are going to refer to the covenant. And the mm-hmm. covenants you're talking about is the Abrahamic, you know, I'm the God of, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So if you get those basic principles, then as you look at First and Second Kings, you can really see the prophet's message was really to call Israel back to the covenant and back to mm-hmm. uh, be faithful to the Lord. Well, and you don't have to be a sleuth to figure this out. As you read through Kings, it keeps saying this happened because the Israelites did this. And there's a passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's too long, but I feel like when the exile happened, when Israel's exiled, there's a section that says it's like, in case anyone was wondering, here's exactly why this just happened. It says all this, meaning the exile took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord, their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshiped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them. On and on it goes about these practices, these awful practices. I think it's so interesting that it always is pointing back to the salvation of the Exodus. Like, look how I saved you. I'm going to continue to rescue your sorry heinies or donkeys and, (laughs) and can, and continue until I save you ultimately with Christ, right? The sort of Exodus of the new Testament. Um, and, And it's just so clear all throughout it's, and sometimes people talk about the Bible being confusing and there are definitely confusing parts, not trying to say that's not true. Mm-hmm. But when you read this, it's like, there's no question why this was happening. It just keeps spelling it out. And I think it's so helpful for us when we study these things to go, I mean, when we read this to say, okay, so what, what's my version of this? I may not have a high place in my backyard, but I have a high place in my heart, right? Like I have something that I give more worship to than to God, or I trust more than God, or, you know, I, yeah. I don't know if you guys want to say anything about that, but, um, just any sort like of closing pour thoughts, you, pour what? out to you all of my sins right now. Okay, no. great. Let me just turn on my recording device. <laughs> all of my high places are, no, why don't we say each other's I've been keeping yeah. a list about Evan for a while now. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Text memo. No, any just final thoughts like that about takeaways from the Kings, the good Kings, the bad Kings, everything in between, um, as we close out. Wow. I mean, yeah, it just kind of goes back to the the whole point of the books themselves, and that was to demonstrate that um, the reason why they were in captivity was because these things happened. And so um, when we get away from God, there are consequences for getting away from God. Now, now again, we're not we're not America's not Israel, uh, but there are lessons that we can learn as Christians from these people, and that it was there for a reason. It's in it's in our scripture for a reason. So I think that. Um, it, it is very beneficial for, for New Covenant Christians to read the books of First and Second Kings in the Old Testament because there's so much that we can learn about yeah. our own selves, the fact that we are uh, uneven performers, and, but yet God is faithful. And what we see again and again is the faithfulness of God. And so mm-hmm. it should encourage us to know that even though we may have messed up, we can still learn from, from our past. And uh, the education is ongoing. Yeah. 
I would just quickly say at the end of Kings, you know, go all the way back to the beginning of Israel asking for a king, right? And yeah. Samuel's like, you yeah. know, you don't want to do that. They're going to script, conscript your people into war and, you know, uh-huh. overtax you, uh, and, you know, draw your 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 daughters into the king, you know, the, the harems <laughs> or service and all this sort of thing. And all of that is exactly what happened. So See, that's when yeah. they should have brought Samuel's ghost back. He'd be like, I told yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I definitely, uh, and I told you so would be hysterical. Third, third <laughs> Samuel, just four words. I told yeah. you so. I do have one Amen. final thought in relation to just to kind of tie a bow on things. Like I, I was thinking about these the other day and kind of a different thing I was thinking about, but uh, the Russian novelist Dostoevsky, uh, perhaps one of his greatest novels is called The Brothers Karamazov. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people may not have read that, but essentially that book is about a family that is got all kinds of dysfunction in it. And I mean, there's people who are believers, people who are vehement atheists, people who are very devout, people are in the middle. And, uh, and there's a lot. That's why the book is so rich and it stood the test of time for so many years. It's because there's so much that you can see. You can see like your own self in that story. I would say the same thing of the Old Testament and these kings is this dysfunctional group of people. But yet there is a thread of the grace of God that runs throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we can see ourselves in that uh, and even the good people and the bad people as well. So, so it, again, to go back to the point I was trying to make earlier is that uh, you can read this like a novel and it's, it all really happened. It's not just some made up novel it all actually uh, we believe i think that it actually happened i think you guys would agree with me on this that this is all history it's not just some made-up story and that uh god put it there for us to learn from so uh let it be an encouragement to you all right if people want to ask you more about this kind of stuff and pick your brain uh where can listeners find you Yes, they can find me at epicarchaeology.org. Uh, we also are on Facebook. Uh, just look up Epic Archaeology uh, on Facebook. And then also we're on YouTube as well. Uh, we have a podcast. Uh, we're going to be recording more episodes fairly soon. It's called Monocle and Spade. And Sarah's been on that. Uh, but it is, uh, we're going to eventually get it on the podcast platforms. But right now it's only on YouTube. So they can find us on YouTube as well. If they need to email me, my, my email address is ted, T-E-D, at epicarchaeology.org. When in doubt, just add another vowel to archaeology. There's like 14 of them in there. It's probably an A. Where you don't think there should be an A, there is. Anyway, and when it comes to us, everything you need to know is at HoustonTOT.com. So uh, as usual, subscribe, review, rate us, all the things. Send us gobs and gobs of money. We would love that too. Um, But until we see you next time, until we crack up in another book of the Bible or four, uh, we encourage you to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed.